a pleasure to be here. I've long been a fan of Christendom from afar. This is actually my first visit to the campus. Um, in part, uh, well, I've been impressed with Christendom's commitment to undergraduate education, plus scholarship. Good scholarship still goes on here. There's not uh, a divide. Uh, there's no dichotomy between you know, being professional scholars and and caring about the education of our students. Uh, I don't want to go too far in ingratiating myself to you and risk flattery by naming names or books or articles, so I'll just mention my discipline, uh, you know, the wonderful work and example of uh, the founder, Christendom Warren H. Carroll. Uh, in my opinion, Meyer School, I think there's a buy-in that I really admire, a buy-in to the mission of the college. I mean, it compares admirably to liberal arts colleges, which do not have a similar volume in my experience, and many do not. And if I had to hazard a guess as to how that's the case <laughs> at Christendom, uh, Newman would come to mind immediately, it did come to mind. In St. John Paul II's Ex Corte Ecclesiae, he quotes Blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman's observation that a true college or university professes to assign to each study which it receives proper place and its just boundaries to define the rights, to establish mutual relations, and to affect the intercommunion of one and all. Um, so I think that that goes on here, you know, and I'm uh, looking forward to becoming more of a friend of the university, of the college, in the years, the days and the years ahead. Um, speaking of the saintly pontiff, his fidesz at ratio is especially relevant today for me. As I will in part address the continual and urgent need for the Catholic intellect to respond to false dichotomies and tragic dualisms which undermine the human desire, our hunger and thirst for the true and the good. And we're going to see that in the example of the two men I want to look at today, uh, Romano Gardini and Carl Schmidt. I would also like to join the Christian community in uh, expressing my sorrow over the passing of Father Benedict Groschel. Um, uh, and uh, I had the uh, pleasure of meeting him in New York uh, when I was a student in, uh, at the Graduate Center in CUNY. Uh, he was a priest that I consider in the mold of both Newman and Romano Gardini, who I'm going to tell you a little bit more about today. Okay, so let me get started. <clears throat> today I want to tell you a story about a Nazi lawyer and a Catholic priest. I did say a story. This is not the start of a bad joke where they enter into a bar. Um, they didn't know each other, actually, socially, and may well have done so. But my paper focuses on a little-known crossing of paths between two of the more significant German figures in 20th century intellectual life, the legal and political theorist Carl Schmidt and dogmatic theologian Romano Gardini. Schmidt rose to prominence as an academic jurist and constitutional lawyer during the Weimar Republic, established in 1918 on the post-First World War ruins of the Wilhelmine Empire and the disintegration of German monarchy. In the Republic's final years of crisis, Schmidt was centrally placed as an advisor to the last of the two Reich chancellors before Adolf Hitler took that office in January of 1933. The enabling act of March 23rd brought the Republic to an unceremonious end by allowing Hitler to effectively rule Germany as a, as a dictatorship. To his lasting infamy, Schmidt quickly adapted to this changed state of affairs. He joined the National Socialist Party in May and committed himself to the legal justification of its consolidation of power until he was ejected from the party against his will in uh, 1936. Needless to say, this period of collaboration has made Schmidt a controversial figure, uh, not unlike uh, Martin Heidegger, another uh, intellectual of, of similar weight. And, uh, and both of them, had, both of them uh, were middle-aged when the Nazis took over. They had done a great amount of scholarly work, and so it becomes an issue in the literature, well, how do we deal with this period of their life? So then on the other hand, we have the Catholic priest and theologian Romano Gardini, uh, you might notice that his name sounds Italian, and you would be correct. He was born in Verona, Italy, but his parents moved to Germany while he was still an infant, and he spent the entirety of his life there. Ordained in 1910, Gardini fast grew in renown through his involvement in the liturgical renewal and Catholic youth movements. 
both of which were significant factors in the Europe-wide uh, post-war Catholic Renaissance. He established himself first as the leader of liturgical renewal with the publication in 1918 of The Spirit of the Liturgy, a foundational text of all subsequent liturgical form through to the Second Vatican Council and beyond. Uh, Pope uh, Benedict XVI uh, wrote a book where he took the same title. He wrote The Spirit of the Liturgy as well. He was a great admirer of them. Um, the current pontiff, uh, Francis, uh, initially was going to write a dissertation on Gardini uh, when he was in Germany as a student. By 1920, Gardini was also the recognized spiritual leader of Quickborn. That was the largest German Catholic youth organization, and he served as its official pastoral leader from 1923 to 1933. Additionally, he assumed the editorship of the movement's official journal, Die Schildgenossen, which means Comrades of the Shield, in 1924. And he quickly developed that into a, a national Catholic periodical devoted to theology and culture. So he was really immersed in Catholic intellectual life in Weimar. Unlike Schmidt, Gardini was never a Nazi supporter or collaborator. Instead, he published numerous critiques of the regime, with the result that he frequently lived and taught under police surveillance. Die Schildgenossen was shut down in 1939, and he narrowly avoided imprisonment in 1941. So I said the two knew each other personally. They first became acquainted when the 34-year-old Schmidt began to teach at the University of Bonn in the spring of 1922. Gardini was completing his habilitation at the university and uh, uh, lecturing there at the same time. In April 1923, the 39-year-old Gardini was appointed the first chair in Catholic philosophy of religion and belief at the University of Berlin, and he remained there until 1945. In 1928, Schmidt left Bonn and was reacquainted with Gardini because he became a, a professor of law at the University of Berlin. The exchange I'm interested in occurred in 1924 when the theologian published some reflections on politics in an essay, in an essay titled Rescue of the Political, um, Rettung des Politician. It could be figuratively translated, more figuratively translated as salvation of the political. Um, I'm choosing rescue. I think that might be more of an intention, but the, the dual meaning is interesting. Gardini's essay was inspired by having read a small book of Schmitt's that was published the year before called Roman Catholicism in Political Form. I believe the criticism of Schmitt found in Rescue of the Political provides clues to how their paths could diverge so dramatically a decade later. To properly discuss Schmitt's book and Gardini's critical response, two preliminary remarks on background and context need to be provided. Uh, the first is that what makes the encounter between Schmidt and Gardini of great moment is that the scholarly literature on Schmidt has long been dominated by what, by what I like to call a standard narrative, uh, which presumes his bona fides as a Catholic intellectual, where the, the term means something, you know, the adjective means something. Right? It does inform the intellect. Um, even, he's often even called a proponent of quote-unquote political Catholicism. You know, the political the application of Catholic ideas and thought into the political arena. And he's, he's considered this at least until uh, the late Weimar years, until, the mid, uh, until about 1926. The narrative unfolds something like this. So here's a little background on Schmidt according to the standard narrative. He was born into a Catholic family in a majority Protestant enclave, a small town, itself located in the majority Catholic region of the Rhineland, which in its turn was the westernmost province of the Protestant rule of Prussian kingdom. A little bit like Russian, stacking Russian dolls. Right? That he was in a little Catholic enclave parish, tight-knit family, inside of a larger Protestant community, itself put inside a larger Catholic region, itself dominated by, you know, uh, by the rule of the, the, Prussian, the Protestant Prussian kings. Schmidt had three great uncles on his mother's side who were priests and lived through Prussian Chancellor Otto von Bismarck's culture comp, the cultural struggle, of 1871 uh, to 1887. Like all devout Catholic mothers before and since, Louisa Schmidt wanted her eldest son to become a priest. <laughs> it is still true, but I know it wasn't my case. State high school in a neighboring town, Schmidt even boarded for a time in a seminary. 
He had no interest in a religious life, however, and instead went into the study of law. Yet his, um, I'll skip this part. In, Wy- in Weimar, during those years, his works apparently are claimed to draw upon Catholic uh, themes and thinkers. He writes a lot about Mace and Donoso Cortez, a lot of these 19th century um, Catholic uh, counter-revolutionary political thinkers. Um, But then, eventually, uh, he became alienated from the church, um, and the literature all agrees on this, and he moved in a more decisionist and authoritarian direction uh, that the Stater narrative believes prepared him for his eventual collaboration with the Nazi regime. The Stater narrative typically dates this shift to 1926, which is the year in which he incurred uh, uh, Latte Sententia excommunication, by means of a civil marriage to a second wife without having uh, previously um, resolved canonically his sacramental marriage to his first wife. Right? So in that very act of the civil marriage to the second wife, he uh, incurred excommunication. Uh, and it was a little bit of a scandal uh, to the Catholic uh, intellectual milieu in Weimar. <clears throat> so on all of these points I just gave you, I actually could make arguments against this standard narrative, uh, but I'm not going to do that today. Um, I'm going to focus on one, and that's specifically that one of the jurist's books stands out and stands above everything else he wrote as justifying him as a self-consciously Catholic political thinker, 1923's Roman Catholicism and Political Form. The title itself prepares us to think that a, the author is a Catholic. Uh, so I will, I'm going to refer to it throughout just uh, simply as political form. It will become clear by the end why I'm calling it just political form. I think that's what he's writing about. Political form deserves the pride of place as evidence of Schmidt's purported intellectual Catholicity. It was first issued by Jacob, uh, Jakob Hegner. He was the leading publisher of Catholic authors in Weimar, Germany. And then it was reissued in 1925 uh, by a press by the official uh, printing press of the German bishops, the Episcopacy. And it had the bishops imprimatur, their seal of approval. It was part of a series of books published to represent, as the series was called, Catholic Thought. All right, so it certainly looks like we should be reading it as the work of a Catholic thinker. The book was reviewed six times in the Catholic press, which is actually more than any other book that he wrote. And it also was a great cause of his positive reputation amongst German Catholics in the Weimar era. Um, unsurprisingly, the standard narrative latches on to it then, and, and what the positive reaction that it had as proof that he was you know, self-consciously and also just an influential part of the Catholic intellectual life in Weimar. So now my second preliminary remark, and this is on political Catholicism itself and Catholic political thought. Historian Martin Conway uses the expression political Catholicism to describe political movements which claimed a significant, though not necessarily exclusively, Catholic inspiration for their actions. Political Catholicism does not mean Catholics who are active in politics, but political action which was Catholic in inspiration. Given its focus on organized parties or groups, I want to modify it slightly to include intellectuals and the work of intellectuals. Thus, political Catholicism is a proper term of designation for the organized political activities of a movement or party, as well as for the writings of theorists, either individually or groups, for whom Catholic doctrine and theology are a significant and self-conscious source of inspiration for their intellectual and or practical efforts. So it's very wordy. But my point is is that uh, there's something normative about Catholicism for the thinker. To be a proponent of um, both the local material and legal interests of Catholicism considered ecclesiastically as well as the church as authoritative teacher magisterium of the individual or group by means of its body of doctrine, tradition, canons and institutions must be recognized by the movement or theorists in order for them to be designated an example of political Catholicism and this is my rendition um, I think that this is acceptable as a definition because it actually covers people in movements that are very different from each other. It's a, it can be fairly broad. You can have uh, Catholic political thinkers 
who we would consider to be on the political left and on the political right could fall into this as long as they're trying to put their ideas within this sort of framework. They can be right or wrong about the relation of their ideas to what the church teaches. Uh, it's not a, you know, this isn't a matter of orthodoxy or heterodoxy. They could be either. Right? But they're trying to do this. And to, to me, that's what it means to be a political Catholic thinker, broadly construed. Anything less than that would mean that the, that the term, the description of the term Catholic uh, isn't actually, it's misleading. Uh, instead, you should, some other body of ideas is what's really at issue for them, like liberalism or socialism or conservatism would be most common. So the pre-modern, and then now I want to talk a little bit about Catholic thought, political thought in general. Uh, the pre-modern consensus in Catholic thought was that there exists two separate orders, the spiritual and the temporal. The former is embodied in the Catholic Church, which functions as the authority, autoritas, upon natural law and the first principles of ethical and religious life. The temporal order is the political community, or specifically its governing part, tasked to exercise power, potestas, in directing the community toward the common good. Of the two orders, the spiritual, the social or pre-political order, is classically viewed as both temporally prior and ontologically superior to the political. This priority and superiority does not entail subjecting the temporal order to theocratic rule. Rather, it serves as a check both on tyranny and revolution. The former tyranny is avoided by moral critique of government injustice, um, and the latter by legitimating political authority uh, as perfective of human nature and ordered to God's just dominion. So this consensus, I believe, holds until early modernity, and it shaped what historian Christopher Dawson details so wonderfully as Christendom, hence the name of this college. However, the early modern monarchs began to actively foment nationalism through centralization, uh, as well as exploit the emerging social revolution of Protestant sectarianism in early modernity to the goal of establishing their absolute authority, even over the Catholic Church within their dominion. And this is just as true for Catholic monarchs as it was Protestant. The development of political modernity from the perspective of church-state relations can be reduced for our purposes, and all this is very reductive, obviously. <laughs> very, this is a very summary. But I, I think we, we can reduce it to our purposes to the alternatives of Gallicanism, which would be state-controlled or subservient national churches, versus ultramontanism, essentially in this context just meaning orthodox Catholicism. However, a couple more pivotal contrasts must be noted. First, to pre-modern philosophy, a political regime has the human attributes of the ruling element or part and is evaluated in terms of the capacity of that part to instantiate the common good. Beginning with Niccolò Machiavelli, modern political philosophy philosophy conceptualizes rule as without human attributes. The result is that the sovereign can never be judged as potency. We recall our Aristotle here. It is an end, the sovereign, the king, is an end in itself, autonomous, and not to be evaluated in ethical terms. Philosopher Francis Slade explains, the actuality of the modern sovereign, unlike that of the pre-modern king, is complete as soon as it exists. Whereas a king is measured and limited by the form he aspires to embody in his kingdom, realizing that form in varying degrees, there being good, bad, and mediocre kings and kingdoms, the sovereign, the modern sovereign, is never less than a sovereign. That's all you can say about them. As Thomas Hobbes put it, quote, the name of tyranny signifieth nothing more nor less than the name of sovereignty, be it one or many men. So there's no such thing as tyranny. Tyranny is just rule. It's sovereignty. Similarly, Machiavelli uses the single term principality to cover both pre-modern concepts of tyranny and kingship. These two philosophers are joined by Jean Baudin, who developed the modern concept of a unitary and absolute sovereignty, as well as, again with Hobbes here actually, with Baudin and Hobbes, they provided Gallicanism with its guiding principle of cujus regio, uh, eius uh, religio, 
apologize for my Latin pronunciation here. Um, whose rule, his religion. According to Catholic Studies professor Russell Hittinger, the modern Catholic intellectual response to political modernity began in the mid-19th century with the need to defend the institutions of the church. Primarily, it was the onslaught of secularism in the 19th century that really got uh, Catholic thinkers, theologians, and popes to start trying to come to terms with what was new, what was going on with modern political rule and the modern state. Catholic social doctrine accordingly emerged in defense of two propositions. This is Hittinger. First, the state does not enjoy a monopoly over group personhood. Second, the societies other than the state not only possess real dignity as rights and duties bearing entities, but they also enjoy modes of authority proper to their own uh, society. So this response continued to be worked out through at least a century and a half of papal encyclicals, dealing with problems relating to the nature, ideologies, and the policies of the state, in which, quote from Hittinger, they share a common stock of principles on such things as the human good, or, I'm sorry, the human person, the different forms of solidarity, subsidiary, and then the common good. Uh, these four principles are fundamental to political Catholicism. But neither was the pre-modern understanding of politics abandoned. Okay, so keeping those preliminary remarks in mind, let's look at Schmidt and Gardini's text. So a quick summary of political form. As with most of Schmidt's books, political form begins with an attention-grabbing sentence. Quote, there is an anti-Roman temper that has nourished the struggle against popery, Jesuitism, and clericalism with a host of religious and political forces that has impelled European history for centuries. End quote. The temper which Schmidt speaks of treats Rome as the Antichrist, or the Babylonian whore of the Apocalypse, which in turn serves as an image with mythical power, deeper and stronger than any economic calculations, its after effects long endure. For Schmidt, the premier example of the political use of this anti-Roman sentiment was found not in France's secular uh, state, nor the German culture comp of Bismarck, but 17th century England, when it was subject to Puritan Oliver Cromwell and his, quote, demonic rage. Schmidt's probably apt. <laughs> Despite the harsh-sounding phrase, Schmidt actually treats the roundhead with tacit approval, for he next claims that, quote, since the 18th century, the political use of anti-Romanism has become ever more rationalistic more humanitarian, utilitarian, and shallow. So it's actually gotten worse by becoming less effective. Late modern bourgeois liberalism, or less demonic, late modern bourgeois liberalism seeks to deny the importance of myth and irrationality in driving politics. Thus, instead of a demonic rage against the Catholic Church, for the whole, this is Schmidt, for the whole of the parliamentary and democratic 19th century, one most often heard the charge that Catholic politics is nothing more than a limitless opportunity. Its elasticity is really astonishing. It unites with opposing movements and groups. I'm sure we've all heard this as well. It's a very common uh, complaint. Indeed, as Schmidt recounts in detail, Catholics have been found to preach, quote, the alliance of throne and altar in monarchies, while simultaneously standing quote, wholly on the side of a firm democracy in the peasant democracies of the Swiss cantons or in North America. An initial defense against the charge of political opportunism Schmidt offers is that any party with a firmly established worldview is able in the tactics of political struggle to form coalitions with the most disparate groupings. Consequently, behind a variety of political alliances lies only one consistent principle, the power of Catholicism, a phrase Schmidt does not here define. He says, not only Catholicism, but nationalism and socialism have the same capacity to form these widely varied political groupings. What makes all such coalitions possible is that, from the standpoint of a worldview, all political forms and possibilities become nothing more than tools for the realization of an idea. Some of what appears inconsistent is only the consequence and manifestation of a political universalism. So now in the particular case of Catholicism, Schmidt says that there's a consensus view that the source of its political universalism resides in, quote, in a historical complex 
and administrative apparatus which has perpetuated the universalism of the Roman Empire. Thus, a second explanation of the church's political opportunism is that to every worldly empire, like the Roman Empire, belongs a certain relativism with respect to the motley of possible views, ruthless disregard of local peculiarities, as well as opportunistic tolerance for things of no central importance. Every imperialism that is more than jingoism embraces antitheses. So therefore, the church, as an epigon of the Roman Empire, gives it the attributes of an imperial universalist force. Although any imperialism embraces antitheses, Schmidt believes that the anti-Roman temper would have become, quote, infinitely deeper if one had grasped completely the extent to which the Catholic Church is a complex of opposites. Uh, it uses the phrase complexio oppositorum. The church as an institution embraces political opposites, such as in having an autocratic monarchy whose head is decided by the aristocracy of cardinals, but in which there is nevertheless so much democracy that, as a 19th century French bishop, uh, Felix uh, Dupin-Loup, put it, even the least shepherd of a bruzi, regardless of his birth and station, has the possibility to become this autocratic sovereign. That's uh, that'd be a reference to Celestine, I believe, right? The, uh, shepherd of a bruzy, who uh, stepped down uh, after five months, resigned. Pope Benedict uh, used him as a, a model. Um, so at this point in, in the book, Schmidt returns to the issue of defining this political idea of Catholicism that separates it from other imperialisms. Uh, he says that the essence of the Roman Catholic complexio oppositorum lies in a specific formal superiority over the matter of human life, such as no other imperium has ever known. This formal character of Roman Catholicism is based on a strict realization of the principle of representation, the particularity of which is most evident in its antithesis to the economic technical thinking dominant today. Okay, so it's going to be about representation, some concept for him of representation that the church is able to embody. Schmidt explains the concept by contrasting it to late modernity's economic, technical manner of reasoning. And this would be the capitalists and the socialists who are fighting it out uh, in the early, 19, uh, early uh, 20th century. <coughs> and, and liberal, liberalism. You know, he has in mind the liberalism of allowing the free reign of the economy, you know, that, that a very controlled, handicapped state, uh, not the liberalism uh, that we might be used to with that term. Okay. So what is this manner of reasoning then that uh, the church offers? He says, well, if you start with the fundamental modern dualism of mechanism and nature that arose from the Protestant dichotomy of spiritual inwardness and economic worldliness. You know, Catholicism considers this to be a false dichotomy. Human labor and organic development, nature, reason, they're, they're one. Uh, faith and reason. Uh, the church rejects these modern dualisms by offering an alternate understanding uh, of human reason. Quote, the rationalism of the Roman church morally encompasses the psychological and sociological nature of man. And unlike industry and technology, is not concerned with the domination and exploitation of matter. The church has its own rationality. Many modern thinkers might believe that the church embraces irrationalism. In fact, she has, quote, suppressed superstition and was, quote, always on the side of common sense against fanaticism. Schmidt says that even Max Weber has ascertained that Roman rationalism lives on in the Roman church. I keep emphasizing that word Roman. It'll make sense a little soon. So Schmidt agrees with Weber in describing Catholic rationality as Roman, defined as, quote, a particular mode of thinking whose method of proof is a specific juridical logic and whose focus of interest is the normative guidance of human social life. The church's success against fanaticism is due to the fact that its rationalism resides in institutions and is essentially juridical. Uh, its greatest achievement is having made the priesthood into an office, a very distinctive type of office. The priesthood is 
institutional and shaped by canon law, which I think is what Schmidt means by the juridical aspect. And it's best personified in the office and person of the Pope. Schmidt calls the papacy, quote, truly the most astounding complexio oppositorum, complex of opposites. For it is personal, yet independent of charisma. The Pope exists both as an unknown, unbroken chain, sorry, this is a quote, as a, a quote, unbroken chain linked with the personal mandate and concrete person of Christ, and fills a representative role, representation, a representative role or function as the vicar of Christ. It is this capacity to make representation personal that has been lost in late modernity. Instead, it focuses on, quote, absolute economic materiality, and it even tries to make politics just a matter of technique. We just get the technique right. We just have the right laws and the right landscape here. Uh, it'll just be a matter of expertise, you know, technical expertise, and it'll run. The bureaucracy can do it. Sounds like a, a theme of certain administrations. But yet the political is essentially immaterial for Schmidt, right? No political system can survive even a generation with only naked techniques of holding power. To the political belongs the idea, says Schmidt, because there is no politics without authority and no authority without an ethos of belief. An authority cannot exist simply by brute force. That can only happen for a short time. People have to believe and have to obey. The materialist and economic view of politics as technique is common to socialism, capitalism, and uh, for Schmidt, contemporary parliamentary liberalism. All three flatten sovereignty by making economic calculation decisive. So the church, on the other hand, then, the manner in which the church functions in its juridical form and the concept of a personal and representative authority points Schmidt to his own version of what can be called a political third way. The idea of a third way was very big in the early 20th century, trying to get beyond this dispute between America and its capitalists, its businessmen, right, and uh, uh, it's, you know, the liberalism and then uh, uh, the socialists and the anarchists coming from the East. <clears throat> so the, this is a long quote from Schmidt here, okay? Quote, the political power of Catholicism rests neither on economic nor on military means, but rather on the absolute realization of authority. The church also is a juridical person. The church is a concrete personal representation of a concrete personality. All knowledgeable witnesses have conceded that the church is the consummate agency of the juridical spirit and the true heir of Roman jurisprudence. Therein, in its capacity to assume juridical form, lies one of its sociological secrets. But it has the power to assume this or any other form only because it has the power of representation. It represents the civitas humana, you know, the, the human city. Again, representation, though, not, not what it represents, but representation is the key concept, uh, the essential concept for Schmidt. The, quote, the Catholic Church is the sole surviving contemporary example of the medieval capacity to create representative figures. The Pope, the Emperor, the Monk, the Knight, the Merchant. What the Church represents, quote, God, uh, God, uh, or, oh, God become man in historical reality, or what Schmidt just said, the human city, is not actually important. The point is that it has proven itself over time capable of representation. Into the 18th century, political modernity had maintained some classical figures, uh, like the legislator of Rousseau, which was representative of the general will of the people. However, since then, there have only been occasional attempts, uh, Schmidt says, at, quote, embarrassingly telling imitations of the church, such as uh, the positivism of Auguste Comte, uh, who tried to develop a religion of humanity. And he was trying to model this religion of humanity, which didn't, well, it's humanism. It's you know, what we would call secular humanism. Uh, tried to model it after the church. Right? So like Schmidt, he was seeing somehow there's something interesting here about this power to represent an idea, to, you know, to uh, bring along, you know, instigate belief. So they would think of the institution. Okay, so 
The problem, Schmidt says, with Kant's attempt, is that bourgeois society was no longer capable of representation. In rejecting authority, the bourgeoisie rejects representation, as the latter idea is so complete is quote so completely governed by conceptions of personal authority that the representative, as well as the person represented, must maintain a personal dignity. However, all is not lost for Schmidt. <clears throat> what Schmidt seeks is political sovereignty with the capacity, the capacity to assume juridical form, accomplished by means of the power of representation, of embodying another reality, even a myth. Representation can still be recaptured by the state. In fact, he says that, quote, God or the people in democratic ideology or abstract ideas like freedom and equality, with the uh, Jacobins, I would think, um, can all conceivably constitute a representation. The needful thing, then, is to maintain personalism and sovereignty and avoid mechanization. For, quote, once the state becomes a leviathan, it disappears from the world of representations. End quote. Better to learn from, quote, the political idea of Catholicism and in its capacity to embody the great trinity of form, the aesthetic form of art, the juridical form of law, finally the glorious achievement of a world historical form of power. So we're now in possession of what Schmidt is after, in my view, in Roman Catholicism political form. Uh, He's looking to the Catholic Church as a ready source from which to draw political inspiration in the fight to reestablish the unified and sovereign state, the modern state. Because the church is an authentic embodiment of the principle of representation. So let us now look at uh, Gardini. In Rescue of the Political, Gardini places a footnote immediately after the title in which he makes the only direct reference in his essay to Schmidt. There he explains that his political reflections have been inspired by reading political form. However, he stresses the fact that he does not at all agree with everything in Schmidt's book. For, quote, much seems greatly exaggerated. Furthermore, quote, the error is also committed of equating Catholic with Roman, or Romanesque, actually depending on Indeed, we already saw that Schmidt's use of the attribute Roman for the Catholic Church is manifest throughout his book. At the outset, he described a temper not of anti-Catholicism, but of anti-Romanism. And then he continually emphasized what he believes is specifically Roman uh, within the form and functioning of the Catholic Church, its juristic or canonical ecclesiastical form, as well as a supposed Roman rationality that establishes personal and representative authority. Of course, Schmidt is fully aware that it was, the, it was Protestants who began to call the Catholic Church Roman uh, in order to distinguish it from other Catholic churches, right? most notably the English Catholic Church. Uh, so it's a manner of speaking of, uh, more common to Gallicanism, more common to the idea of the concept of thinking through national churches. <clears throat> Gardini's reflections on politics follow upon this one simple but incisive comment on Schmidt's book. He begins by admitting that nowadays political matters are chaotic, and certainly in 1923 24 by they, they looked that, that way. With uh, uh, Under the auspices of the Treaty of Versailles, the Rhineland had been occupied uh, by, the, by French troops. I mean, they, there were all sorts of issues about, um, you know, there was uh, you know, the uh, you know, beer hall push of the Nazis, the, you know, the communists. There was a lot of social and uh, chaos and a lot of tumult in Weimar, uh, particularly in these early years. <clears throat> but Gardini says that there are some fundamental issues that are worth dwelling upon philosophically. First, the theologian recognizes that to understand political action, one must come to terms with the nature of the state. <coughs> Agreeing with Schmidt's criticism of purely reductive economic thinking, Gardini believes that the state is only in part managerial as regards to the welfare of the individual and community, Instead, what is more truly political about the state is that it is sovereign. So he's going to bring in the word sovereign here, too. So we'll have to see if, if it's different from Schmidt's notion. 
He notes that while one can approach sovereignty by means of some limited jurisdiction or is based on, quote, unquote, uh, quote, sociological significance, eventually it would have to go back to God. Otherwise, the sovereign remains an empty dress, a fiction. So the emperor will have no clothes unless clothed in the recognition that God is the source of his sovereign power. Uh, the Catholic theologian is well aware that his claim could be understood on the grounds of the early modern political theory of divine right monarchy. And he, he specifically addresses this. Uh, however, he's making neither a simple attribution of the source of state perquisite, nor is he making a blasphemous claim that the sovereign, a king, or the state is a god on earth. Instead, Gardini is placing the sovereign within the genus, the political, and is therefore subject to the natural and moral law. For he sees no alternative purely philosophical, purely philosophical way to, quote, justify state authority other than from the grace of God. That is, so that it represents God's earthly image of his absolute authority. And there's that word again, represents, representation. Recall that Schmidt deliberately leaves open-ended what the state represents. He leaves it flexible enough to be one of many ideas or myths, so long as it succeeds in establishing absolute authority. He's very, he's, you can already see that he's rather existentialist. They would call him a existentialist in a way that you know, if it comes into being, you, know, you have the little Hegelian thing, the real is rational. You know, if, it, if the sovereign can assert its authority over you, then it exists, then it's sovereign. Um, but this is not the case for Gardini. The sovereign represents in an earthly form the divine absolute authority. So from another direction, Gardini uh, states here that justification of the political sovereign comes from God. Authority is legitimated or justified by the grace of God. We have a theologian here talking about justification and grace. Um, the implication to me seems to be that the concept of justification, as understood by Catholic theology, is actually relevant. Hence, Gardini next states directly that, quote, the state is not responsible in moral and religious things, but the church is responsible in these. And he adds, quote, right, recht, is also a natural manifestation of divine sovereignty. For this right, the state sets its legitimate existence, the spiritual source of its sovereignty. That is authority. Every law, recht, is in the end made in the name of God. So the sovereignty of the state, its authority, can be known in part by its works. It is not sola fide. Like justification is in, in uh, you know certain forms of Protestant theology, right? So political authority, sovereignty is one of the earthly images of representation of God's absolute authority, but it is not itself that absolute authority. Gardini is adamant on that point. Uh, so then he says, if politics is con uh, conceived as a separate order, so it does not yet follow that it evades the moral law. Of course the moral order applies to the political field, just as it applies to scientific researchers, artistic creators, or for technical or economic workers. Right? He, he gets so adamant about it that he, he doesn't actually really form a syllogism <laughs> Of course it does. Um, just as with pre-modern Catholic thought, Gardini claims that sovereignty is a value, an aspect of, quote, character. Because only God has sovereignty intrinsically. The good, capital G here, a little platonic, the good instantiated by both man and the state is a participation in the divine good. All right, so Gardini then changes direction of approach to the issue of political sovereignty, and he asks, what can be said about the people that make up the nation state, about their political activity, and in what they are directed to by the state? His answer is that political action for a person is to make their God-given nature come true, to speak the God-given word in his being, a being in liberty and a being in honor. Here we see Gardini appropriating the concept of the dignity of the human person. 
the theologian immediately responds to the possible objection that he could, he could imagine that the way he is speaking is in the terms of those who both divinize the state and promote a nationalist populism. On the contrary, Gardini asserts that these political values must not be left to the, quote, pagan spirit of nationalism, of nationalists, whose political attitude is, quote, suffocatingly unintellectual, narrow, and brutal. In fact, he believes that Catholics only have themselves to blame for allowing a pagan nationalism to become a widely grown attitude because, quote, we must take these values from out of the hand of political paganism and classify their place in the whole of life correctly from a Christian Catholic outlook. Um, I believe it's quite possible that Gardini thought Schmidt treads too close to political paganism, uh, to such an approach to sovereignty. Um, since the reading of political form occasioned these remarks. Um, if so, I actually do think that such a claim would be, or criticism would be warranted. Um, and I'm going to now try and demonstrate that. In the, uh, in the foreword to the first edition of Political Theology, four chapters on the concept of sovereignty, Schmidt claims that he had written it together with political form in March 1922. The two do need to be read together. Since in political form, Schmidt uses the term representation for that which he had already called sovereignty in political theology the year before. Similarly, the, quote, idea of the state in the earlier text is captured in the church's, quote, juridical form and personal form in the latter one. Political theology begins with a very famous claim, quote, sovereign is he who decides on the exceptional case. Sovereign is he who decides on the exceptional case. So this definition entails the decision of whether an exceptional case is, uh, um, that we're faced with an exceptional case, whether it exists, as well as what is to be done. Schmidt is convinced by the early modern arguments of Baudin regarding the absolute and unified nature of state sovereignty and that it trumps any other considerations. He notes that from the outset, Baudin recognized the connection between sovereignty and the exception. For in states of exception, quote, it is clear that the state remains, whereas law recedes. State of exception, you could say a state of emergency, and there's arguments over how we should interpret what exactly has in mind. You know, revolutionary state, civil war, invasion. But in these, in these instances, the state is still there, but law dissipates. <clears throat> Although, you know, in Baudin's case, he tried to actually maintain a, a connection to natural law, but natural law still remains. Um, Schmidt says, come on, you don't really think that. Because the way he writes of Baudin, he says, the, the French jurist understood that in emergencies, the tie to general natural principles ceases. To Schmidt, the, quote, the existence of the state is undoubted proof of its superiority over the validity of the legal norm. The decision frees itself from all normative ties and becomes, in the true sense, absolute. End quote. This view is a classical, early modern political uh, form of statism and positivism, where the norms exist because a sovereign has made them a reality. Right. Uh, quote, the exception appears in its absolute form when a situation in which legal prescription can be valid must first be brought about. Every general norm demands a normal, everyday frame of life to which it can be factually applied and which is subjected to its regulations. The norm requires a homogeneous medium. These are actually really, I'm going to unpack some of these phrases. I know it's a lot of jargon, right? Um, I'll leave that angle. So, but uh, yeah, you know, so the norm, a normal situation requires a homogeneous medium. Let's come back to that. For a legal order to make sense, a normal situation must exist, and he is sovereign who definitely decides whether this normal situation actually exists. So Schmidt rejects the natural law. Uh, he also rejects social pluralism, <coughs> which would be, a, in Catholic thinking, would be a critical part of uh, subsidiarity. That's kind of neither here nor there. I know that the phrase social pluralism sounds kind of dangerous. <laughs> but um, there is a, at least you know, a way in which it would 
be part of subsidiarity, the idea that there's actual groups, corporate beings that <coughs> exist in their own right. <coughs> Instead, for Schmidt, um, the rule of law is an accomplishment of the state built upon a homogenous medium because there exists no norm that is applicable to chaos. Okay, so social peace and stability, homogeneity, is an achievement of the state over a recalcitrant or chaotic material substrate, the people. The rejection of natural law and social pluralism are quite uncharacteristic for a German Catholic, uh, given the country's national development along Protestant and Prussian lines. However, they do follow easily upon Schmidt's rejection of even the most fundamental principles of Catholic thought, such as the priority of the social over the political, which would lead to the indirect, quote-unquote, indirect power of the church, such as uh, <coughs> St. Bellarmine, Robert Cardinal Bellarmine uh, discussed in Hobbes' attack. Uh, you know, through being an authority in the first principles of ethical religious affairs, uh, natural law, in political theology, rather than simply rejecting the claims of modern liberalism, which sought to handicap or fragment political sovereignty and deny personality to it, Schmidt favors what he calls Hobbes' political, quote, decisionism, which, quote, rejected all attempts to substitute an abstractly valid order for a concrete sovereignty of the state. This includes, a quote from Schmidt here, the demand that the state power be subordinate to spiritual power because the latter is of a higher order. To this reasoning, Hobbes replied that if one power, potestas, were to be subordinate to another, the meaning would be nothing more than the one who possesses power is subordinate to the other who possesses power. Quote, he which hath the one power is subject to him that hath the other. That was Hobbes. And then Alshamet. To speak of superior and inferior and attempt to remain simultaneously abstract is to Hobbes incomprehensible. For subjection, command, right, and power are accidents not of powers, but of persons. He illustrated this with one of those, this is still Schmidt, with one of those comparisons that in the unmistakable soberness of his healthy common sense, Hobbes knew how to apply so strikingly. Power or order can be subordinate to another just as the art of the saddler is subordinate to that of the writer. But the important thing is that despite this abstract ladder of orders, no one thinks of subordinating the individual saddler to every single writer and obligating him to obey. So to Schmidt, the decisionist, quote, what matters for the reality of legal life is who decides, as we already saw in political form when he claimed that the, quote, will the decision as it culminates in the doctrine of papal infallibility is the most important aspect of the church as a model for secular rule. I actually think I skipped that when I came to it the first time. So I'm sorry, it sounds like I'm referring back to something I don't remember saying. But I, in, in political form, Schmidt wrote that the, quote, will to decision as it culminates in the doctrine of papal infallibility, end quote, is the most important aspect of the church as a model for secular rule. It's a really interesting take on papal infallibility. Um, early on in political theology, Schmidt even rejected the most central of all principles of Catholic social and political thought, that of the bonum commune, the common good. Quote, everyone agrees that whenever antagonisms appear within a state, every party wants the general good. Therein resides, after all, the war of all against all. But sovereignty, and thus the state itself, resides in deciding this controversy, that is, in determining definitively what constitutes public order and security, in determining when they are disturbed, and so on. In political form, Schmidt continues along the same line of thought, since the modern warring economic partisans represent this fight of the social against the political. They are engaged in the war of all against all, and seek power in order to universalize their particularist purposes and views which, determine, which undermine the sovereignty of the state. Uh, Schmidt includes in this, he does include the Catholic Center Party in Germany. He never joined it. Um, he's often read as, he was invited to be a speaker at a number of their events, and it's interesting to read what he says. <laughs> 
when he's invited to speak. Um, he, uh, some students tried to get him to run for office, uh, for parliament in the center party. He quickly declined. But um, he was always a little aloof. He, he didn't make it very clear, though. He didn't. He was uh, concerned about alienating anyone uh, too too much. Um, anyway, so the, all of these parties then are just trying to pull apart the state for their own particular interests. <clears throat> what this does is hollows out representation. It hollows out sovereignty. Sovereignty has lost. Uh, it's early modern content, like Rousseau's legislator, uh, which had existed because republicanism originally meant, quote, that the members of parliament are representatives of the whole people and thus have an independent authority vis-a-vis the voters. In its early modern form, a parliament could contend with the king over who truly represented the nation without entirely undermining uh, the unitary sovereignty of the state, because both parties claimed, analogously for Schmidt to the claims of the church, to represent from above and maintain personal authority. So that's been going to, you know, socialism, anarchism, liberalism have been destroying that. It's quite easy, in my opinion, to miss the secularity of Schmidt's line of thought in political form. He often seems to simply be defending authority transcendence, ideas. Um, <clears throat> but it's crucial to notice that he never actually suggests any idea that he wants to see instantiated or represented by the state. To draw the problem more clearly, let us recall philosopher Yves Simone's critique of Rousseau's political theory, since Schmidt refers to it in political form as an example of the personal representation and unitary sovereignty he wants to see the state reclaim for itself. Simone tells us that Rousseau sought to protect the enlightenment myth of autonomy, that one's will, you know, our individual wills, can never morally be in submission to the will of another person by replacing authority and obedience with nature. Right? So they want to replace the idea that there can be just obedience, just authority, with the idea of nature. Quote from Simone, in politics, the way out of relationships involving authority is the theory of the general will. Like a force of nature, the general will is impersonal and incorruptible. On the other hand, it is mysteriously identified with the will of each of us. So that by obeying the general will, man simply obeys himself. The essence of obedience is eliminated. Authority, as power of binding the conscience of man, has disappeared. This form of government however, is inherently totalitarian, says Simone. Quote, the transcendent character of the general will, its superhuman infallibility, the very peculiar way in which it combines privileges of natural necessity and those of human initiative, arouse the suspicion that government, no longer protected by its traditional vindication, has been given a new and more effective guarantee of overwhelming power. End quote. And then although it's a bit strange to see a Catholic philosopher, quote, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, the socialist theorist did have an insight into Rousseau that I find equally relevant to Schmidt. Proudhon wrote that, quote, tyranny claiming divine right had become odious. Rousseau reorganized it and makes it respectable by making it proceed from the people. So he says. The people, one of those ideas that Schmidt believes can be turned into a successful political myth to ground the absolute and unitary sovereignty of the state. Uh, perhaps even in such phrases as government of the people, by the people, for the people. Question mark. When Schmidt ascribes personality to sovereignty, it is not analogous to human personhood, nor is it analogous to the personhood of the triune God. That most important example of a Catholic theological complex of opposites, which Schmidt significantly ignores. I say significantly because he read so much Donoso Cortez, and Donoso deals with this uh, in detail. <clears throat> Let me try to hurry along. Okay. So when Schmidt ascribes personality to a sovereign, to sovereignty, it's, it's not analogous to either of these, like the human person or the triune person persons. 
Um, rather, it's analogous to the absolute and voluntarist deity common to early modern Protestant theology. Um, in contrast, Gardini does not cross a bridge too far in his own rejection of liberalism and anarchism. Gardini happened to be one of the early popularizers of Newman in Germany, and like that English cardinal, um, the blessed English cardinal, he maintains the traditional Catholic view that the political is subject to the social, which is both ontologically prior and superior to it. Quote, the government, and this is from um, his essay, Rescue of the Political, he says, Gardini says that the government is not the highest of values. The noblest part of my personal arsenal is not that which is related to the state. <coughs> every demand of conscience, Newman here, every demand of conscience is above it. <coughs> every real religious call of God in my soul. I can never affirm the state, affirm state and political will. As soon as in so doing, I would transgress the just, the holy, the kingdom of God. End quote. And he adds that, of course, there are additional areas that are not the concern of the state, such as, quote, the inner sphere of the person, the family, and the church, end quote. If the state goes any further and transgresses on any of these areas, then it becomes pagan. And such overextension explains, quote, the deep mistrust religious people, of religious people against the state, since it keeps trying to intrude in those areas because it repeatedly tries to violate the person, their gewaltigen, rape. It's a very strong word choice. It says that the state repeatedly tries to violate the person, to eliminate religious authority, and make him, the person, subservient. The state tries again and again to convert the sovereignty, which is only lent to it by God, into divine sovereignty itself. The sovereignty of the state consists only in that it is representative of God in the natural and legal orders. However, it tries to justify itself as original, sole, absolute. In the last analysis, the state is always seeking to be God. This is still Gardini. Uh, Hegel even called it the present God. And the state succeeds in enforcing this claim to the extent the individual forgets God. Since then, he has nothing to oppose to the state. What power can take on the state? As the state succeeds, and this is uh, no, back to me. As the state succeeds in this modern project of secularization, uh, the quote soul's capacity to worship is robbed of its true object and focuses unnoticed on the state and justifies its claims. End quote. So that there is no room for misconstruing his views, Gardini reiterates forcefully that what he has detailed in his essay has nothing to do with nationalism nor a quote racial state. Um, it's 1924. It's fairly early to talk about racial states. He was quite aware of what was going on. He concludes by reflecting on the traditional Catholic rejection of both liberalism and collectivism. The former renounces sovereignty and is apolitical, much as Schmidt describes the, the economic-minded neutral state. But its polar opposite of an authoritarian state must also be rejected, since for it, quote, the personality of the individual is politically insignificant, end quote. So I mentioned at the outset that I'm purposely calling Roman Catholicism political form by its final clause, and I think it's now a bit clearer. Um, actually, nah, I can skip that. That's good. I'll get right to my concluding remarks. Um, in May 1924, a month after Gardini's essay appeared in De Schilgenossen, Karl Muth, the editor of Germany's leading Catholic periodical, Hochland, asked Schmidt to write an open letter reply to the theologian. Uh, as the biographer Reinhard Mehring points out, Muth pushed Schmidt to try and make a place for himself in Catholic journalism, and he offered him an opportunity to clarify his views on the relationship between the church and politics, particularly on the Roman and the Catholic. Given the strong criticisms that were issuing from some Catholic quarters on political form, it actually didn't get only positive reviews like the standard narrative seems to have read. In his journal, Schmidt records that on May 24th, he had begun to design a reply but the next day he writes that he spent the night restless and depressed over, quote, this ridiculous letter to Gardini. And he thus declined Muth's request. So why couldn't Schmidt reply to Gardini and carry on a discussion with him? When reflecting back on his life in 1971, Schmidt claimed that his longest running and deepest motto 
had been, uh, I'm not going to butcher this Latin, uh, had, had been a, a Latin motto which translates to, where you are worth nothing, there you should want nothing. Schmidt explains in the interview that this motto fit his life ever since the, quote, monstrous shock he took from criticisms of political form from the German Catholic intellectual milieu upon its publication. These criticisms revealed to him that, quote, a layman has no say in this celibate bureaucracy. On December 7th, 1921, go back a little further before he writes this, uh, writes political form, Schmidt's close, very close friend uh, and author, Franz Bly, wrote the jurist a letter in which he describes himself as by nature a sensualist and certainly, quote, no Christian or Stoic. And he concludes his letter by saying, this is a letter of lie to his dear friend Schmidt. He goes, I have no relationship to what is called redemption. And considered the statement that Christ, uh, sorry, that Christ had to die for us on the cross, a vulgar posterior swindle, to dodge around the baseness of execution. So, I am a godless cleric, like you, dear friend. In 1922, soon after having arrived in Bonn, and just after having written political form, Schmidt records in his diaries that he was reading a book by Cardinal Newman, which his wife sent him as a birthday present that July, despite his having already begun divorce proceedings against her. However, that summer Schmidt was also intensively, quote intensively, this is his words in his journal, reading the French political theorist Charles Maurras, as well as the paper of the same name as his movement, Action Française. With which of these two authors in this summer, 1922, would Schmidt align, or whose words would he absorb? The sole contemporarily recorded comment by Schmidt upon reading Cardinal Newman tells us that he suspected the Catholic theologian of being, quote, a Jew. <laughs> Around the same time, Schmidt remarks, quote, I am really not in this central milieu in Bonn. And he, quote, even speaks of atheism. That, that part is a quote from his biographer, Mary. So I haven't gotten access to this, that journal. The mention of atheism is particularly poignant. As Maras famously said, je suis catholique, mais je suis atheiste. Atheiste, right? I am Catholic, but I am an atheist. It's Maras' famous motto. For his, part, for his part, Gardini may very well have sought a mythical third way or political ideal, uh, unrealizable ideal maybe, but his views, in my opinion, are coherently Catholic, and politically so. Schmidt, on the other hand, seems to spend Weimar like a character in a Samuel Beckett play, waiting for the next new and great political form, next great idea for the state. Is that what he believed he had found in May of 1933? Thank you for your patience. Sorry about the late.